And that came from really going into pet stores and saying, I have a Great Dane, what do you have for him? And them saying, nothing. You know, Great Danes don't live in New York City, I'm sorry. Uh, and, and so being very disappointed and wanting things that were specific to him or his size. And then uh, at the time, you know, we trailed Birchbox by about 18 months. They were on fire. And and then we thought, you know, put those two concepts together, uh, an assortment of some toys and some treats and some fun things that are size appropriate. You'll have three different assortments that you can offer to a customer, small, medium, large, every month. And, you know, that has evolved in so many ways today. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Matt Meeker is the executive chairman and co-founder of Bark, which is publicly traded under the ticker Bark on the New York Stock Exchange. Bark was launched with BarkBox, a monthly themed subscription of all natural treats and clever toys for dogs. Matt's idea originated as a passion project because he really just wanted to help his great Dane, Hugo, to really just have toys to play with. Today, Bark is a subscription commerce company that serves dog parents who are obsessed with their dogs, sending thousands of boxes out each month. They reach over a million dogs every month, and they've expanded into oodles of new product categories and thousands of retail locations. And Matt is no one-hit wonder. More from our guest, but first, a word from our sponsors. Take your business online with Wix, the leading website creation platform that's got all the tools you need to create, manage, and grow your brand. Whether you're starting your online business or you've got a side hustle, you can design a site to showcase your brand that'll look great on any device. Join over 200 million people already using Wix's wide range of solutions to enhance their businesses, like ultra-smart SEO tools designed to get you found on search engines, faster loading times to create outstanding user experiences, and payment solutions to help you boost your revenue. Plus, with enterprise-grade security built into every site, you know you're in safe hands. You can manage everything from one dashboard on desktop and mobile, so you can be available anywhere at any time, in the office, at home, or on the go. Want to get started? Head over to Wix.com today and create your website today. Prior to Bark, he had also co-founded the really successful Meetup.com, a network of local communities that meet offline about shared interests and passions like dogs. I was most curious, though, about where it all began for Matt and how he came to find his entrepreneurial spirit. I grew up in a small town in Iowa. So middle of nowhere, very, very small town, probably a pretty typical neighborhood, childhood. It, it was the neighborhood where every everybody had kids. All the kids were about the same age. So, And a lot of stuff happened that probably doesn't happen today where 
you come home from school at three thirty, and you're just out running in the neighborhood free until about seven seven thirty. Yeah, um, you know it's time to go home when the street lights come on. Uh, probably doesn't work that way anymore, but that's where I grew up. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, for sure, it does not. It is really unfortunate when you talk about that and having that companionship, and especially now even added with the pandemic, but raising a couple daughters here in in New York City. Uh, The last thing uh, I have them doing is coming home at like 7.30 or 8, you know, (laughs) in the dark. Um, but, But for sure, it sounds like a nice upbringing. And we're there, you know, at that time, we're, were there entrepreneurs? Were your parents entrepreneurs? Did, did you even want to become an entrepreneur? Did you even know what an entrepreneur was? Uh, I didn't know what it was. I didn't, I never really thought of it in those terms, even as I became one. I didn't think of it with that word. They were all around me, you know, in different ways. My grandparents were farmers. So that's kind of going off on your own and staking a piece of land. And it's sort of, you make whatever you produce there. And then my dad, looking back, he's like a very conservative person. Um, He was a CFO, had the day job, but he also had all these side jobs or or night projects, which included he bought and and ran a health club. He, this is a, this is a weird one, but he started an auctioneering college. So people who wanted to be auctioneers came together and learned from not from him. He also got the instructors and pulled together that thing. He would build individual houses on his own and then flip the house, you know, from the ground up, just buy the land, build a house one year. There you go. So the mindset or the activity was, it was sort of all around me. Uh, he, he sounds like I should be interviewing him right now. Because the guy that didn't sleep a lot. That's I, <laughs> I love it too. And if you go back and think about it, like flipping houses, health clubs, and I'm sure this was, you know, a certain amount of years ago, kind of at the cutting edge of um, what we're talking about, you know, in terms of businesses and ideas, and especially to be able to do that while you're have a full-time job as a CFO. Did that have a big impact on you and kind of the trail you decided to go on? I think so. And I think in two ways from him, uh, there's one part of him that's very explicit, which is basically don't cry about it. Don't whine about it. You have a lot more capacity to accomplish things than you probably think you do. And that got told the stories of two jobs and a full course load through college. And I had a 4.0 and all, you know, all that. <laughs> um, yes. All of our parents seem to have said that. I got to go, <laughs> go check though back. <laughs> but then uh, on the other side, it was, it was a little bit of permission of you don't have to just um, have the normal full-time job. You can do all these other things. It's, I didn't really understand how it worked, but it never seemed impossible to me to just say, hey, that building over there is a health club and I want to buy it and then I want to run it. it. Seemed like just a normal thing to do. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And you know, I don't want to discount also, as you said, your grandparents, because I think probably the hardest jobs are, are for entrepreneurs, I, I would say owning a farm, building a farm, owning a restaurant, building a restaurant, like to me, those are where I have the most respect for for entrepreneurs who just 
you know, really have to grind at it. So I'm sure they played, you know, an impact in, in your business as well. Yeah, for sure. I, I think there's a, a behavior model there of you have to get up every day and work at it every single day. There are, there are no days off which co-founders are nice for that to <laughs> take a little bit of that load, but yeah, it's a, it's a great role model. Yeah, no. So it, it sounds like you, you had a really uh, uh, diverse and interesting or role models to, to look at, but for you, you ended up from what I understand going into the Navy. Yeah. What was that like? And why did you choose to take that path, which is fantastic. And certainly appreciate your service as someone who lives in this country, but was that something you always had on your mind and direction? Uh, no, it wasn't. Uh, I went to college for a semester before that and didn't do very well, probably as a lot of first semester freshmen um, didn't do very well, but I was bothered by it. I felt like these classes I'm taking don't have any relevance to what I might want to do in my life. I don't feel I'm learning anything. I'm certainly not doing well and I don't feel directed. And so I quit, uh, dropped out and I said, I'm just not going to throw the money away there. If there's not a, if there's not an outcome that I see other than a degree and I got bored and I started to think about what do I do next? And one of those things was join the military, join the Navy. And so I did. And it was really a great decision. It was saw more of the world right after, right after that than I had in probably my whole life. And, and learned a lot, learned a lot about myself and about the world. And it forced me to grow up very quickly and got me directed and focused and uh, learned how to motivate myself to, to drive forward. What do you think you learned the most, as you said, from being in the Navy about yourself? Uh, there, there, there's so many good lessons out of there. Um, it's, <laughs> you, you learn, I mean, again, coming from a small town in Iowa, a place like New York City or, or Los Angeles is about a million miles away. It's something they talk about on TV, but you don't think it really exists. Uh, so one of the things that you get exposed to very quickly are there are a lot of different types of people out there. They're, they're from all over and they've had different lives than you did. And then that I, I felt very fortunate in some ways where this might be the very best opportunity they'll ever have in their lives. This is the path. For me, it was a choice. For them, there was no choice. This was the best thing that could ever happen. So a lot of appreciation and a lot of from their motivation of like, you've got to make the best of the opportunities you've got um, because not everybody has those, those same opportunities. Take me from there to starting Bark and how that came about. Wow. <laughs> a lot of snakes in between. Yeah, yeah. Throw, throw it into a quick, uh, you know, as we have limited time on the podcast, but going from that Navy experience in terms of what made you start Bark and how did it come about? Yeah. So 
So in between a lot of really great experiences, um, finishing college, um, a few startups, I joined one or two and, and uh, had two of my own along the way. And then it came to Bark and Bark was, for me, it was really initially right before I was working for a venture capital firm and running an incubator. And so we had 21 to four person startups that we were hosting for free and trying to make them successful. So I'm learning a lot there. I'm learning a lot about um, commerce, but I didn't have any experience in it. And the other thing that happened during that, that time was I brought this dog into my life, this great Dane. And I felt he was very underserved by New York City pet stores. And so it was just about like, hey, I want to do something where I learn how commerce works and I want to make this guy happy and I want to keep my day job. And that all, I thought this thing would get a hundred customers and I'd get all those things and life would be great because I loved that job so much. But we get seven, eight months into it and it's, it's just taking off. I mean, in, in every which way it's taking off. So it pulled me right in and I did it all for, for Hugo. And I still do. I love it. Can you tell me the original concept, the idea I assume was BarkBox? Was that the, the that's, business? That's right. Yep. Yep. And, and that came from um, really going into pet stores and saying, I have a Great Dane. What do you have for him? And them saying nothing. You know, Great Danes don't live in New York City. I'm sorry. And so being very disappointed and wanting things that were specific to him or his size. And then at the time, you know, we trailed Birchbox by about 18 months. They were on fire. And, and then we thought, you know, put those two concepts together, uh, an assortment of some toys and some treats and some fun things that are size appropriate. You'll have three different assortments that you can offer to a customer, small, medium, large, every month. And, you know, that has evolved in so many ways today. We've learned that there are hundreds of millions of nutty people like me who are obsessed with my dog. And also instead of, and that they have more unique qualities than their size. So we now are sending about a quarter million unique assortments every month instead of three. So it's, it's grown and evolved in just ways that were unimaginable at the time. That's amazing. And I certainly relate as I Never grew up with the dog, but about two, two and a half years ago, we got a dog, uh, Ollie, who has definitely, because my kids won't walk him, become my best friend and love taking him to the dog run, dog park. If he doesn't get a gift on the holidays, you know, we're, we're like, where's Ollie's gifts? And just such a, you know, there's just such an incredible emotional attachment that I never really quite understood that one could have, you know, with a dog. And I am living proof of that. So I can imagine you see it, people love their dogs and, and you're, you've built an incredible business. Did you think, you know, starting out, I know it, it kind of took off, but did, did you, from your VC days, really think this would do as well uh, when you kind of looked at it analytically from what has happened? Uh, I never looked at it analytically. <laughs> You're gone with the VC stuff. Yeah. And again, it was more just kind of pulling me in. And so 
I was resisting it all the way. I mean, for a very long time, seven, eight months, we didn't raise any financing. Our, our first investor was Mike Hirschland, who runs Resolute. And Mike said, I'll invest in it if you run it. I was like, are you kidding? No, I have a great job. Forget it. And, and then we ended up doing that. And I said, okay, I'll do it for five years. Now we're, we're 10 years on. So that promise went out the window. But it was never it was never a science project or it was never a, a an MBA case. It wasn't, let's sit down and look at the TAM and mm. um, let's figure out where the opportunities are. It was just, this product feels right. It doesn't exist. Let's do it in a fun way. Let, and you learn things about the audience along the way. You learn about how they're currently served and see opportunities to serve them in better ways. And if you don't, don't do it. So we kept learning as we went along. We were just fortunate that we stepped into an industry that had, still has a handful of, of product companies that are like 50 to 100 plus years old wow. who, who are very accustomed to speaking to retailers, but not to customers. And so speaking to a customer is a foreign language. And, so having a connection, especially about something as passionate and emotional as this, was a real opportunity, and I believe still is. Was there a time early on when you thought maybe you had made a mistake to really try and scale this business? Uh, no, not really. Uh, <laughs> and I think the biggest reason why was the expectations we're so low, <laughs> right. you know, it's easy to be successful when you start with low expectations. No, no, it, we were fortunate. We had gone about it in a way where we wanted to build a sensible business. It wasn't grow as fast as you can and scale and sell for billions. And it was just, let's work with some cool people who we really like and serve dogs in a fun way and be ourselves. And be sensible about how we build this business. We we really tried to not raise capital and relatively raised very little along the way. But we raised it from people who were really good people who we were aligned with, who we could work with, and basically left us alone and were, were supportive. So there wasn't that point of like, wow, is this thing going to work? It was working fine. It was working well enough. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, your mindset, which is great too, because it was a passion and something you were really doing for the love of your dog that, like you said, those expectations weren't there where a lot of other businesses start, raise capital and, you know, they have to hit certain numbers and they do want to sell for billions. And it is really nice to be in a situation where you're, you're actually doing it for a love and a passion. And do you find most of the people uh, who you do hire are in the same boat as you and animal lovers and dog lovers? And are those the folks you're finding to work for Bark? Oh yeah. I hope so. They, they better be. It's, it's definitely an advantage to us too in our, in our recruiting for years and years. Um, we've been able to recruit people who we, we punch above our weight and that's a real, that's a big reason why, you know, starting at the very, very top here, we have a phenomenal independent board member, a woman named Betsy McLaughlin, who would be, is highly sought after from 
every startup or every board you can imagine wants Betsy. And she chose us because she's obsessed with her dogs. I think that's why she didn't choose for me. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it allows us to really recruit great people who then we're mission aligned with. Yeah, I would imagine, as I said, I'm a relatively new dog person, but I've always noticed prior, and now I understand how much people love their dogs, like family members, even more than family members. (laughs) You know, was that something that have you, uh, you must have just seen incredible stories or learned so much about people who do have dogs. Is that pretty much universal across the board with people who are are dog owners and people who use Bark? It, it seems so today, yes. And we've heard those stories, endless stories. We have a, I don't know how many years ago, this was maybe five years ago, we published a, a book, a New York Times bestseller, where we solicited input from anybody who wanted to send it about like your story about how much you love your dog. And so mine is the first one in the, in the book, not because it's the best necessarily. That's just where our team put it. <laughs> uh, mine was, I love my dog so much. I started a company for him. And then you have 132 pages of stories like that. So yeah, it's, it's pretty universal. More from our guest, but first a word from our sponsors. While some things seem to happen in the blink of an eye, like volatility and inflation in the markets, other things take time, like building a successful startup or perhaps creating a great piece of art. I'm no artist myself, but it could be foolish not to recognize the existence of art as an asset class. Billionaires have been investing in the art market for centuries, while some of us have been sticking to the classic 60-40 equities and bonds ratio. But get this, there's finally a way to get access to the investment of the ultra high net worth investor without being one. With the $1 billion fintech startup, Masterworks. Using data and technology, Masterworks is democratizing the art market. They're transforming a centuries old asset class so that everyday investors can invest in blue chip pieces from iconic artists like Warhol, Picasso, and Basquiat to their portfolios. The best part, it only takes a moment to invest in blue chip artwork on their platform. You can get started at masterworks.io slash HSH. My listeners even get priority access to their latest offerings. Just go to masterworks.io slash HSH. See important disclaimers at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. And our next sponsor. If there's nothing else you've learned from this podcast, I hope it's that mistakes are okay. As a startup, you're going to be challenged by things you've never dealt with before. We know because we were a startup too. If you get everything right, congrats. You're the king or queen of awesome. The key is that we figure it out, right? Often using what we learn from getting things wrong. A lot of you are figuring out how to optimize your cloud computing situation right now. Let's say you're building a new company headquarters. Do you hire an electrical contractor with one star and no recommendations? Of course not. You take the highest ranked, most recommended electrical contractor that's available to you. So when you're standing up your cloud technology, 
to power your startup, you can take chances with some other cloud computing company that few people have heard of, or you can go with Oracle. Yes, Oracle. A name that big is available to your startup through their Oracle for Startups program. 70% of cloud services, free cloud credits, multi-cloud support, mentorship, connections to other big Oracle customers. I mean, seriously, who wouldn't want all that on their side? Get pros on your side while you're figuring cloud out. Check out Oracle for Startups at www.oracle.com slash success. And we're back. And it sounds like you guys have been able to grow, I mean, pretty incredibly over the past several years. What's been the secret to that and just the amount of, you know, customers you've served now in the millions? Yeah, uh, it, it's it's a couple of those things I mentioned early on that we, we started from a place where the industry, the innovation in the industry was pretty minimal when we stepped into it. Um, direct-to-consumer companies in the space really didn't exist. And, and that hadn't kept up with the, the customer base, which was huge. You know, you're talking 60-plus million households with a dog, and almost all of them feeling this tremendous love and passion, but a separation from the people who make the products. And so the, the very simple but, but hard things we do are we listen, we have a direct relationship with the customer and it's an ongoing relationship via subscription. So we listen, what did you like? What didn't you like? How can we make it better next month? And then we make it better. We, we just, if you say my dog's allergic to poultry, we don't send you chicken going <laughs> forward. It, it sounds very simple. It's really hard to pull off. The other thing is we, we're dog people too. So we talk to you like a human who loves a dog. We, we don't run things through legal and apologies to Kate through the PR team. And, <laughs> you know, we don't try to massage the language till it, until it's perfect. We, we're messy and sloppy and we say all kinds of stupid, crazy things. Um, but people know they're dealing with another human on the other end of the line. And, and so they connect with that and I'll, just like another person in the dog park. Yeah. It sounds like there's an authenticity and an ethos with the brand that really, when I think about it, I know you guys, but uh, there, there never was before. And, and certainly I could attest to what you said about, you know, pet stores in New York city. And I mean, I, I don't even go, go into them, uh, you know, just in terms of uh, what we're able to find there. And, you know, you said there wasn't really a time that you thought maybe this wouldn't work or, you know, maybe you had gone into the wrong type of business. Was there a moment in time or a time when you were like, wow, like this is overwhelming or like, I know this really can be a big business? The, the, you certainly have your bad days along <laughs> the way. Um, things happen. Um, they usually happen from the outside in. And then there are those fundraising challenges. And you have those moments where you think, 
am I the crazy one or is everybody else the crazy one? <laughs> and so th- there were, there were those moments for, I don't know, the first eight or nine years where we raised money. Uh, I'll say three times, but, but really twice um, because our existing investors were so supportive. They, they sort of came and stepped up and did a round and, uh, but you go out and I'd meet with 50, 60 investors and go in and, and you know, the, the VC private equity world, as we know, is very dominated by white males. And you go in and, and they look at you like you have three heads when you're talking about <laughs> serving dogs and this passion around dogs and you're selling toys. And, and it kind of, I think it was perceived as a joke of a business. And so the, the fundraising trail was always very difficult. The funny thing is, as soon as we'd leave the meetings, we'd have the usually female receptionist saying, I love your company. Oh my God, it's the best. Um, so that kind of kept you going of like, well, she gets it. They don't get it. Am I doing something wrong? And I probably was, but um, uh, those, were, those were tough things where you, you were looking for that financing to go to that next level or that validation. Or, and it was hard fought because people understand what they, the products that they use um, themselves. I do too. Uh, and we were having a tough time making those connections. And then all of a sudden, two, three years ago, the pet industry got really hot and it was totally different. So I think we're still on that, that hot phase in terms of uh, financing. Yeah, it it reminds me of a story which is interesting. In BC, we had actually uh, one of the first podcasts with Jenny Fleiss from Rent the Runway, and she would tell the story of how she's trying to explain to a lot of these same male white VCs, like the feeling of opening up a box with a new dress in it or, you know, like, and, but it's also amazing because no matter who the business is, and we've had on this podcast, people like yourself have been incredibly successful. It's always hard raising capital, no matter what the business is. And, and really uh, it is a testament of most entrepreneurs who are able to pick themselves off the mat and keep going, which it sounds like you were able to. And, and that, that really is so important to be able to do. Yeah. The, the nice thing for, for us was every time we went to raise capital, it was opportunistic. It was about, we have very, something very specific we want to invest in and we believe in, and we're trying to get capital to put behind that. But if it didn't come together and a couple of times it didn't come together, we had no problem walking away from it and saying, Nope, sorry, that wasn't there and just continuing on with the business because it was a sensible oftentimes cash flow positive or profitable business we were we were able to go on we never had a a point where it was we have to raise capital or we're done we know the pandemic we've heard the stories a lot of people got dogs uh during the pandemic was that what was that like for the business uh during the pandemic 
roller coaster. <laughs> I mean, at the at the beginning, I think like a lot of us didn't know what would happen, uh, didn't know how bad this could could be or could get, and just on it every day, looking at the numbers, thinking like, why did that happen? What's going on here? Uh, so you have eight years of history, and then all of a sudden, none of it matters anymore. And then, and then, like you said, the dogs start coming into the homes. Um, people are at home a lot more with their dogs. And we had this big spike in, in interest and you kind of pat yourself on the back and you're like, is that because of stuff we're doing or is that the world or what is it? There's no way to, to figure that out. Probably a little bit of both, but it, real spike there. And then that that brings about a, a lot of new challenges and the world keeps changing. Um, you know, as soon as we have more and more demand coming at us, now the supply is short. And now trying to get products out of Asia and over here and get them through customs. And we've all heard those stories too. And you've, you've gone from a nice, good business, a startup business to something that's really at scale and not ready for it in terms of software and facilities and infrastructure. Uh, so our team, uh, our team, we, we gave everybody a roll of duct tape and they're just <laughs> running around doing that. Um, and throw on that, the cultural part, if you, if you remember through there, early parts of the pandemic, we have George Floyd, we have those types of things and people are at home and it, it, it's, th- there's a lot to manage in that um, beyond just, hey, there's a lot of dogs. People are buying more stuff. Like you get the good side and then there's just much more to manage with the team. Yeah, such an emotional time just from every which way from the pandemic and a lot of the socially uh, social impact situations and it it really when we look back i'm sure in several years uh just such an incredible time and it sounds like your business really started to scale and was that was that where has it been very difficult you know you hear a lot about businesses that grow too fast or you know and like you said you're patching holes and other ones are breaking how has that been for you personally and for the business? Uh, it's, I think it's just part of running a business. And we've had, we've had those years before where I can't remember the exact year. I remember about the dollar amount in terms of revenue. But it was one of those years where you just feel like you get punched in the gut every single day. Something happens like, oh. And I, I keep, I referred to Betsy on our board. Um, she will tell me that there are these, these steps in your revenue where that just happens. Things change and you've got to adapt to that change. And so we've, we've been hit by it a couple of times and it just keeps flying at you. All you can do is sort of absorb the body blow, learn from it, and then make it better and move on. Um, doing it through the pandemic is an added degree of difficulty. Yeah. I I think that's a great point. What Betsy said, and just in terms of the business that 
what a lot of would-be entrepreneurs don't understand or don't know maybe because they they hear stories about you and others who've been so successful, but just how many body blows there are, how many things knock you down. And I've noticed from the hundreds of interviews I've done now on this podcast, I would say the probably number one trait that I've noticed of the most successful or just successful entrepreneurs is withstanding those body blows and being able to move on because it, it isn't it so difficult? It, it is. And it's, it's just part of the, the job. Um, it's, you know, right now we know that inbound freight and shipping direct to a consumer or warehouse costs or freight costs, whatever are, are very high. And, Facebook targeting got worse with iOS 14. And there are all these challenges that are sometimes mentioned today. Like there was never a challenge before. For the last hundred years, there was never a challenge. They're always there. Uh, and I think the nice thing or yeah, about an entrepreneur uh, is that you have, you sort of have the built-in permission or understanding that you can pull the levers. Like they were all pulled down and it worked fine in 2019, but then things changed and they always do. And so you got to move this one up and that one up and pull this one further down. You have the permission and, and the know-how to do that. You know your model well enough to say like, all right, we've got to adapt to it. Let's, let's re-pull the levers. Yeah. You know, you said you started with expectations that weren't high. You were doing something for the love of your dog and just for the love of what you wanted to do. Things have changed a lot. The business has grown. Do you still, can you still operate in that mindset? Uh, the mindset has to change somewhat when you take outside capital, when you start to work for investors and not in a bad way. Um, that's a decision you make is we're going to, we're entrusted with someone else's capital and they are expecting a return. And, and so you need to, I think, going into it, have a view that you can get to that level, whatever level of success that might be. We're, we're there again today. We have public market investors who expect some growth or, or profile in the future, and we have a responsibility to return on their investment. Uh, we didn't feel like there was big opportunity, then we shouldn't take that. On the other side, it aligns really well to a mission that we have, which is to make all dogs happy. That means all 90 million in the U.S., however, hundreds of millions there are worldwide, uh, in every home, on every street. We've got a, we have a mission to make them happy where we've barely scratched the surface. We're 2 million customers today. I, you know, when we were a lot smaller, we'd be like, I don't know, half a million subscribers. And you talk about 100 million dogs in the US. I'd say to our team, like, we've got to keep pushing really hard. We've got to take chances. Like, the worst thing, the worst outcome that we could have, we push all in and we try really hard and we do something goofy and stupid and we lose all 500,000. We could do that again 200 more times. Like, we don't want to lose them, <laughs> but. Like, let's not get too conservative about this. Let's not get too safe about guarding what we have. Let's push really, really hard and not lose the edge because we've got a long way to go. 
So we, we've still got, geez, 100x growth or potential in front of us. We're, we're just getting started. Yeah, it sounds like you have a lot of runway ahead of you. And I mean, the numbers are staggering just from what you've told us, but just for how many more dogs there are out there and opportunities for you and moving forward. Like you said, you thought you're going to stick around five years. It's 10 years. Where do you see Bark in, in the next few years and, and, and yourself? Bark, we have, it's just keeping, keeping that momentum against that mission. We're in new product categories now, which are mainly food and health. And those are new for us. So, and they're very, very big. It gives us that opportunity. Food gives us the opportunity to get into every household. I think health does too. So we've got years and years of, if we just focused on those, where we could run pretty fast. We also need to keep the creative gene going. I think we can't just rest on that. So the product development pipeline has to continue churning and trying things all the time, even if they're not working. But it's it's just that serving more and more dogs and households as, as fast as we can. For me, my role has changed. I'm not the CEO anymore. Haven't been for 16 months now. I'm the chair of the board. Board role is very different. Board role of a public company is really different. So I'm mostly, I, I feel like an advisor to a few people on the company or within the company and try to try to keep the, that DNA that we're talking about within there. And yeah, that's, that's my biggest role right now. Yeah. It's interesting the, how going from where you were and starting and to where you are now, has that been a difficult thing to step away maybe from some of the day-to-day or are you really enjoying it? <laughs> both? Or time with the dog. <laughs> both, yeah. Can I have both? Uh, yeah. No, I, I, I love, yeah, I've spent almost every day of the last two years with Hugo, which means a lot to me because he's almost 12. He's, mm. he's very old for a Great Dane. So it means a lot to spend that time with him. On the flip side, yeah, I, <laughs> I don't want to work so hard, but the the challenge still gets me. You know, there, there are things I see that we could do this better. We could do that better. We should be moving the pieces in this way. Very, very easy to Monday morning quarterback. So <laughs> the the juices are still there when it comes when it comes to that. I have to find productive outlets for that. Uh, which I'm trying really hard. I'm trying really hard. <laughs> well, uh, Manish, our CEO, uh, I think he still likes me, but <laughs> probably not much. Well, you can always go start flipping houses or buying health clubs and, uh, you know, follow the old man. Uh, yeah. I'm An sure. auctioneering college. Yeah. Like, we'll, we'll bring it back. <laughs> that is genius. I love it. Uh, it's amazing. Oh, I love hearing stories like that. You know, Matt, uh, wish you continued success uh, as a dog person now. I totally get it. Uh, I love my little guy. It's I'd do anything, do anything for him more so than anyone. So 
I think you're in good hands with uh, the growth of, of, of Bark and especially getting into those other areas. One thing I will say, if you can figure out, I don't know if you guys are in there yet, pet insurance. Oh, that boy. seems to be a lot of questions on that one and could be a big business. <laughs> yeah, we've certainly heard about it and talked about it for about 10 years. Um, <laughs> there are reasons we're not there. We'll, we'll say that for another day, but there are some companies out there trying to do it right. I think doing it pretty well. Interesting. Yes. Well, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for creating Bark and uh, really wishing you a lot of success with Bark and of course, any new ventures we might see you in pretty soon. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> We're just hanging out with you, Go. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman. That's R-O-B-E-R-T. T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.